you know, the, the world is so interesting. How can you not want to know? How can you live not knowing? I never read a book that was so remote that it wasn't immediately useful. Welcome to Pensive Series. Today, we're talking to Doug Carmichael, Strategy Consultant at INET. INET stands for Institute for New Economic Thinking and was funded by billion investor George Soros after the 2008 financial crisis. I met Doug the first time in Hong Kong during INET's annual plenary conference. Doug received a bachelor's degree in physics and a doctoral degree in psychology from UC Berkeley. Later, he was a research fellow at Harvard and then a visiting scholar at Stanford, where he worked on issues related to climate change and social thought. Doug is a fascinating and accomplished man and a deep thinker, and he sheds some interesting light on some very important issues. We talked about Doug's story, how he became interested in physics, and how he developed his own path. We also talked about how he understands the world, technology, and some of the issues that keep him engaged. I was trying to share his wisdom and better understand his journey and how he understands the world. It's a long conversation, but I hope you can draw some inspiration, strategies, or philosophies out of it. Enjoy. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Manhattan, and it was kind of fun because I lived on the east side and went to school on the west side, and so I went through Central Park every day to get to school. Wow. So my view of Manhattan is there are a couple of streets and a lot of park. And how was it, how was it to live in New York, and how was it to grow up there? Well, it's really complicated. I grew up, uh, the entire of my, my childhood was during World War II. Uh, and, of course, it started at the end of the Depression. I was born in 1937. And New York was a depressed place in many ways. I mean, a lot of poverty. Uh, where I lived, we still had the milk was delivered by a horse and wagon. Uh, there were trash men, uh, junk collectors, uh, it, it was quite an amazing world, and um, so I absorbed a lot of that. You know, I didn't have a contrast at that time, so it just was the world. Yeah. But I think I learned a lot about different people and different economic circumstances. The um, it it was just it was so stimulating in so many ways. So I'm grateful for that. I actually left home when I was 15 and went to California. Because I knew I wanted to go to Caltech and study physics. How did you know that? Well, be, uh, a lot of stupid logic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was interested in uh, electric motors and steam engines. And uh, so when I'm in 11 and 12, adults are telling me, oh, you want to go study engineering. So I thought, great, where do you do that? Well, people said Cornell. And uh, But then when I was about... 13, a friend said, you know, you're not really interested in electrical stuff. You're interested in physics, how the world really works. And I said, where do you do that? I said, Caltech. So that was my decision to go. And of course, when I arrived, what I found was that what physics meant by understanding the world was really different than, oh, let's say what historians mean by it. So it was kind of an interesting process. How did you look 
to the future from the past because you know you've seen a lot you've experienced a lot and sort of when you sort of grew up like how did you look to the future and how sort of that changed over time oh that's a big question and we're talking about so many years yeah. when i was that age i just i was so enthusiastic about just learning things i didn't have a sense of the future as being like institutionally or economically different than it was just it would be my future of studying things in the world where the world I treated as a constant. That probably changed um, a little bit. Well, when I went from New York to California, I went from a private school to a public school. That was really interesting, uh, different kinds of people. I really appreciate it. I'm so glad I did that. Um, when I got to Caltech, uh, it was the McCarthy period. And everybody was kind of afraid of being called a communist. And, of course, there were, the scientists tend to be pretty progressive. So I was aware of those forces and those things going on. Uh, and things like I became aware that Caltech had a board of directors. And I would have thought, oh, it's, it's a science place. The board is filled with scientists. No, it was filled with people like Bechtel, <laughs> business people. I thought, why? What, what, what are they doing here? <laughs> so it shows how naive I was about it. But that's where uh, changes really started for me. Then, uh, just to follow your lead here, uh, from Caltech I went to Berkeley. Berkeley was during the free speech movement. It was very politically radical. It was beginning against the war in Vietnam. You couldn't help but think historically with all that going on. This quest of how the world works. And when you made decisions going forward about the future, was that sort of the, sort of the framework that you used to make decisions? Uh, not really. I, I did not think in terms of a career. I thought in terms of what was interesting to me. So that's what made my decisions. And uh, I could say that at Caltech, I, there was a point where I realized I was much more interested in the personalities of the characters that were there, like Feynman, uh, Pauli, Pauling, people like that, than I was in the equations they were writing on the board. Uh, I liked physics, but it just paled in comparison to the human questions. So I let that make my next decision, which was to go to Berkeley and study psychology, which was really disappointing because psychology at that point had become very mechanistic. Okay. So I spent my time basically in the philosophy department and the anthropology department. Just like you being at Harvard as a fellow, I treated being a graduate student at Berkeley as, you know, there are 87 departments and I'm allowed to go to every one of them. So you took advantage of that. <clears throat> so I really took advantage of it. Uh, and it was, it was pretty good. And then I went to Harvard as a postdoc in a thing that was called social relations doesn't exist anymore. And, and that was pretty good, also stimulating. But interesting, it wasn't my view of the future that was making any of these decisions. I was just interested in what I was interested in. Um, you know, and pe people in my uh, back in my family, which I'd become pretty distant from, said, oh, you're, you're studying science, that's great, you can make a lot of money. <laughs> no interest. What's interesting is how this stuff works. So it's interesting, so you didn't look at the world 
through the filter of how can I make money or how can I maximize my education, but sort of how can I have the most fun? How can I do things that I find interesting? Right. That was absolutely clear. And that's partly the way I grew up. You know, I, during the war, my father was off in the Marines. Uh, it was a, a kind of rough time socially, but I was kind of left alone. So I could figure out, you know, from my experience, and it was certainly, you know, what's interesting? What don't I know about? Um, so that's what, what did it. Of course, I became much more aware of, because uh, I ended up doing a lot of consulting with scenarios, which is all about, hey, what's next? So, so when you look back at your life, what was sort of the turning point when you look back at that event or something that happened sort of, you you think changed your life or changed sort of your framework, how you viewed the world or how you thought about the world? Um, was there sort of anything specific that you recall? Well, it's for me, I don't know for others, but for me, the changes were always kind of slow motion. So like certainly uh, as, a, as a child, age five and six, I was interested in how the wheels on toys moved and things like that. So that took me into the world of physics, yeah. away from the world of people. Uh, that was one change. Then going back to the world of people, well, that took a long time. It took uh, because not only did I go to psychology at Berkeley, I went to Harvard in social relations, then I went to Mexico and studied psychoanalysis with Eric Fromm. That was a huge part of my education. But the direction I had already set, I, as I wanted to know more about people, um, the next big change probably came from being in Mexico itself because as a kind of uh, typical uptight Easterner, here I'm in this really emotional kind of loving culture, uh, very symbolist and dramatic, had a huge impact on me uh, for sure. So that was another turning point. But each of these was slow. You know, there was no aha it was only sort of in retrospect that you realized these things. Well, no, I could feel them at the time, but I didn't feel them as a clear decision point. I felt them as a shift, paying attention to slightly different things. And so shifting gears a little bit, you know, you're very interested and passionate about physics. So Elon Musk, for example, also studied physics and Wharton. He has this sort of first principle thinking derived from physics. I was curious whether you had anything like that, sort of something you, you took or borrowed from physics that sort of helped to guide your own life. Well, it, one of the things that's really interesting in physics is the, the idea of fields, like a field of power or a field of electric forces or whatever. And it's a very powerful metaphor, and I'm sure it affected the way I see everything. It affected the way I saw psychoanalysis. It affects the way I think about economics now. But in a way, it was a kind of negative message because I could see the limitations. So I did not do the smart things that Musk did, which is really pretty incredible. Uh, if only he could turn out to people. I didn't have anything. Well, I can think of, for example, I remember uh, as an undergraduate reading a history of mathematics, and it quoted a mathematician named Niels Abel, A-B-E-L, mm -hmm. who did a thing called Abelian groups and stuff like that. But he died at age maybe 26, probably, of, of a tuberculosis. 
And he was asked in his 20, early 20s, how could you do so much? And he said, study the masters, not the pupils. That became really powerful for me. And, you know, what I noticed in almost every field of study, people studied the pupils, not the masters. The masters were, in fact, avoided. When I went to Caltech, I'm really excited, right? So the first day, I rushed to the bookstore to make sure that I get my books. And uh, there was a, uh, the physics book had a footnote on page one that said, everybody who's serious about physics should read Ernst Mach's The Science of Mechanics. Great, I thought, but there are 180 freshmen. They're all going to go to the library and get it. So I put the books down and rushed to the library, looked it up in the card catalog, ancient technology. There were six copies. The most recent any of them had been taken out was four years earlier. So I realized that the way I was thinking was really different than my fellow students. A big moment. You said you decided because you were interested in physics that you did all these things you did. But sort of how did you discover these things? Were these like, you know, childhood inclinations or something sort of that told you that you were interested in physics? Or was it just very, very obvious? No, it, it was slow. Uh, I could start with an, this early memory when I'm about five and I'm sick in bed and uh, my mommy is bringing me food and I'm not very interested. And, but I got a toy, and the toy was a little wooden car that had little green white wheels nailed into the wood, but they spun. And I could put the blanket on my knees and let this car roll down. And it was clear to me that it was going faster at the bottom than at the top. I had no way of figuring out calculus. Uh, but I was... I knew there was a phenomenon there. So that was one thing that got me interested. At my grandparents' house, there was a fireplace. And in the fireplace, there was a fire often. And I would sit there and watch it. Over the fireplace was a portrait of an ancestor. Mm -hmm. And one day I noticed, I'm now about seven, I think. I noticed that I'm looking at the fire and looking at the ancestor back and forth. And I say, I'm much more interested in the fire than in the ancestor. And in particular, if you look at the fire, there's the wood and there's the flame. But there's a space in between where you can't see anything. So yeah. Something has to be there. I wonder what it is. <laughs> now we know, but I had no clue. So those were a couple of things. Then I got interested in uh, model trains and model railroads. <clears throat> you know, you'd have a little electric engines. And I thought, hmm, what if I built a real steam engine? So I got into that and learned machinery, machining parts and all that. It was a big, turned out to be a much bigger deal than I thought. Um, but those are some pieces. Looking back at your life, who are some people who've really influenced you in sort of your thinking or in sort of, you know, your way of conducting your life? Well, uh, the first is a guy named uh, David Krebs who was a teacher of mine in the seventh in the sixth grade and he made geometry fascinating and i was so amazed by that because most teachers made everything boring 
And I thought, you know, the difference is the energy he's putting into this. Then the next person was a guy named Wilson Parkill, who was uh, the headmaster of that school. And he was just a stylish, decent guy. Uh, everybody recognized that. There's scholarships in his name now and all that. Uh, and I think it's really interesting because if you look at the two of them, one is kind of on the mathematics physics side, the other is in a totally different world. He was also my Latin teacher. And then I admired him for his human qualities, not any, not particularly things that he knew. So then um, we could jump ahead to Caltech, where there were several people, Feynman being one. And I've got lots of Feynman stories, but that would take us all day. Do you have um, one that stands out? Oh, sure. Uh, <laughs> one that comes to mind. Uh, one day I'm running down the stairs in the physics building, and as you can do when you're really young, you just lean forward and your your feet just touch the stairs, boom, boom, boom. And I passed him on the stairs, and he called us, stop! And so I stopped. He said, show me how to do that. So we went back up to the top of the stairs and spent 20 minutes going up and down <laughs> doing this thing. It's really fun. Like Feynman would say, the reason you do a theory is not to summarize data you have, but to force you to look in places you wouldn't have looked at without the theory. Totally turns it around. Um, and um, Feyerabend was uh, very much like that. And he happened to have been a uh, student of Bertolt Brecht's. And so he had a literary humanistic approach to science and also an amazing personality. All your thinking, sort of how has it evolved and how has it changed over time? And specifically, were there any points when you said, oh, like this person is such a big influence, it changed sort of entirely how I looked at the world? No, all these changes are slow motion. And that's an interesting thing about theories of change. I yeah. think that, that the idea that something just changes is not as common as literature lets you believe. It, it's slow, yeah, and it's it's kind of sneaks up on you. You find yourself having changed without knowing where you did that. Because at the moment it's happening, it's not what's happening. What you're doing is saying, oh, I'm reading this book, I have to go to this lecture. What time is it? I think I'll try and go swimming before I go there. Just wondering, so what are some habits or rituals that you felt have really helped you to become the person you are. Okay. Um, when I was at Berkeley, um, I didn't have any money. I graduate student stipend, you know, so it's not, you're not plush. Yeah. And my neighbor got the New York Times in the morning. So I realized if I got up at 5.30 and went and got the paper, I could <laughs> sit there and read it and fold it up and put it back. <laughs> <laughs> and doing that, I noticed that there's nobody around in the morning. Yeah. It's beautiful. The air is clear. The sunrise is extraordinary. Uh, where I was in Berkeley, you could see down the street to the Golden Gate Bridge and the fog out there. Incredible birds everywhere. <laughs> By the time everybody else is up, it's all gone. You know, there's a little bit of smog. Yeah. It's just different. So that was, I, what I learned is, uh, what I sometimes think is almost a religious practice, and that is to get up with the dawn. And uh, 
you could joke about it saying, you know, as the sun is coming up, if you get up with it, it's doing half the work. So I don't have to do anything. And I noticed people who got up later are struggling to get up. Reading laterally has been a habit, certainly since graduate school. I learned it in graduate school. It is if you're reading about something and it makes a note about something else, go look at it. Let a random path develop. Uh, follow things out. See where they go. Kind of a discovery procedure. So that was another. And how did you learn that? Well, um, so I don't know the answer, but here's a piece of it. Um, a guy named uh, Richard Tolman, who had been, uh, no, Edward Tolman, brother, uh, who had been chairman of the department, gave his library when he died to the, as the graduate student library. And everything he had had uh, handwritten notes in it. And I found those very interesting. So I started reading not for what was in the print, but what was in the notes. And, and that led me to, he would say, see such and such. So I would go do that. Hmm. So that's probably where I learned that style. Oh, but we have to back up because in high school, um, I was captain of the swimming team and I worked in a bakery. Totally exhausting, stupid, but I did it. And there was a little bit of time between the swimming and the uh, bakery shop where I worked. So I stopped by at the public library. They had a shelf of new books, usually 30 or 40 on the shelf, and they would change every couple of days. And I would just look through and pick the most interesting titles and read them. So it's following you on curiosity. Yeah, right. And there were weird yeah. things. Like I remember a book, Famous Last Lines, and it was people's actually the last thing that they said. What is sort of one book that you're sort of very likely to give out to other people or to recommend to read for other people? Well, it, it, it changes for okay. sure. Um, I think it depends so much upon the person. Uh, but I, things like... Uh, Don Quixote, Greek plays, especially Aeschylus. Uh, you can never read too much Shakespeare, but it's hard to get people to read it. So there's there's no one thing like that. I'm much more likely these days to make a clear recommendation about a nonfiction book, something that's historical or philosophical. Is there something you regret that you sort of didn't do that you wish you had? Sure. I mean, I, I wish I had written pop songs. That would have been a great thing to have done. I wish I had understood more about economics earlier. Not economics in the standard sense, but the real stuff. Well, it's actually a source of, of uh, leverage and power to get things done. I mean, a key decision for me was to give up um, the academic world and become a psychoanalyst. That was huge. How did you make that? Because that, that sounds to me like a huge turning point. In your own life? Well, it was a big turning point. Um, and it came out of my not like, particularly liking my experience at Harvard. I liked the people, but the institution I found, you know, just like you say, everybody's in their own cubicle reading their own pile of books. Um, it's not an intellectual atmosphere. And, and uh, so I kind of rebelled against the academic world at that point. I had enough of it. And I wanted to see what was going on in a broader world. Um, so that was a big decision, and I don't 
regret it on balance. But I, I now spend a lot of time at Stanford. And I do a lot of different things at Stanford. But life would be a little easier if I had stuck with the academic path and I'd now be a tenured professor at Stanford. Just a little easier. Not yeah. much. And, but it would also be a, a lot more terrible. You should just follow through on everything. Take it to the point where something happens. Uh, and I was a little too easy on myself. I didn't, you know, life was hard and I went through a lot of stuff. But I could have pushed harder. I should have learned, I would have loved to have learned Greek. Uh, but the whole thing with languages, I speak uh, passable Spanish and, and I can get along in French. Uh, but I, uh, others, I can read Russian. But I can't speak it. I wish I could. Um, if we go back to Pope's from the one that we have now, mm -hmm. he once said, "If I had known I was going to be Pope, I would have studied harder." <laughs> and I'd say, if I had known I was going to be me, I would have studied harder. And how would you have done that? Like well, it, it's hard because we don't have teachers who teach you that kind of stuff, really. You know, so uh, who really would be. We don't live in a time of good education at any level, so far as I can see. There's some good stuff that goes on in Waldorf schools. That's about the end. That's why I'm really a big fan of Stoicism, because it's very sort of a very practical philosophy. Yeah, yeah so that's good and, and hard. You know, it's demanding. Yeah. And we didn't, never demanded enough of ourselves. These days, you should know several languages well. You should know a lot of history. You should know enough science to not know why light comes through glass and why the building doesn't fall down. Right. And that's one of the good things, actually, having studied physics, is yeah. you know why those things happen, and most people don't have a clue. I mean, they're living in this world, and the light's coming in the window. <laughs> I don't know how that happens. How come? Math uh, is very terribly taught. Calculus can be taught in two weeks. I'm totally convinced. But there's a routine for teaching it that all the mathematicians learn, and they do it in an extremely boring way. Most things can be learned rather rapidly, I believe. More language, more history, uh, poetry. I wish I knew poetry at the technical level really well. Another thing, I paint. Um, and... Um, I wish I had done it much earlier, and I wish I understood it a little better than I do. I'm getting pretty good, uh, and I have a show coming up in June, which is fun. Oh, wow. That's that's awesome. Uh, uh, I'd show you a painting, but I don't have any in this room. Where okay. I'm well, next time. <laughs> uh, but uh, I wish I had done that a lot more. If we get into this kind of stuff, I, I at one point was interested in movie making. Uh, and uh, I didn't do enough to make it happen. I have a son who's had two son films at Sundance, which is pretty amazing. And he's an art dealer in Europe and doing very, very well and has a fascinating life. Um, and he's a, a person who just makes things happen. Um, I, I grew up a little differently than he did, and I think that... Uh, Instead of going out in traffic and causing an accident, staying on the sidewalk and avoiding the accident is what I learned as a way to approach life. Mm -hmm. Don't get killed in a stupid accident.
Is there anything that you wish you would do less? Oh. Or had done less? Wait, waste time? <laughs> no, I don't want to say that because wasting time is often where the best things happen. Yeah, how do you know when you're wasting time? Because sometimes it's obvious, right? But how do you know when you're wasting time when it's not that obvious? Well, you usually have in the back of your mind a, a slight guilty feeling. Okay. Like, I should be doing that, but I'm okay. not. I'm just wandering around. Okay. But the wandering around is good. Um, what is an important truth that sort of do you think very few people agree with you on, you know, on sort of whatever level you want to discuss? One that I think is very important is, to me, almost every, no, every human being is interesting. Most people don't agree with that. Yeah. Never met a person who had a boring dream. Uh, each person, and so that's one. And uh, the American obsession with growth and progress and innovation, I think, is a real mistake. And that actually ties, ties into Peter Thiel because he's very enamored with this guy, Rene Girard. And Girard has a pretty fascinating theory about how the more affluence you have in society, the more stuff, the more potential violence because each person wants what the others want. And so that that uh, anything that looks like success is a guarantee of violence. Wow. That's interesting. Most people don't believe that. And I can't figure out Peter because he's really interested in that kind of work and supports an institute here in San Francisco and Berkeley and excuse me, Palo Alto, that does that. At the same time, he's a super entrepreneur driving change. It's weird to me. I don't get it. I hope this year to figure that out. Why do you think history is important? And then sort of, if there was one person in history that you could have dinner with, like, who would you choose to have dinner with? Well, the answer to the first question, I'm ambivalent. I think you got to know, each person should know have a view of where we are in history, how we got here, and some sense of what could happen. Now, Nietzsche says that understanding history gets in the way of action. I think that's also true. Uh, so I'm ambivalent, you know, and it, it could be that history is just trying to pin things down, and in doing it, you lose the freedom to the future. I don't know. Uh, I find it really interesting. I'm, I'm currently involved in a project in Singapore, where I'm going next week, which is looking at the deep difference between the East and the West and how it's epistemology, ontology, whatever you want to call it, how they are. And you, couldn't, you can't do that without history. And history, especially of uh, the origin of ideas. Uh, I'll just give you one example. Uh, everybody uses the word capitalism. Whoever even bothers to look it up in a dictionary. It comes from the Latin cap, C-A-P, which is Latin for head, as in baseball cap, caput, uh, the capital on top of a column, or the capital of a country, or capital punishment. All that's coming from the same thing. Now, how did it get to capitalism? Okay, in Rome, the measure of wealth was cattle. And if you breed a bull and a cow, what do you get? You get 
a new head of cattle, a new head, cap. That's where it comes from. It comes out of breeding and uh, the dynamics of having a herd. And um, of all the ancient measures of wealth in the ancient world, cattle was the only one that, that bred. Everything else, like you have calorie shells, you have 10 today, you're going to have 10 tomorrow. But if you have 10 head of cattle, you might, come spring, have a couple of extra ones. <laughs> so the magic of capitalism comes from that. I find that very helpful and very instructive. It gives me the sense that we can get a handle on what this critter is in thinking about a better way to do our world. And, and I think everything is like that. And certainly um, on this uh, East-West project in Singapore, uh, I've been learning classical Chinese in order to understand the way ancient Chinese thought. And it's just incredible looking at the etymology of these words and how they go. Uh, they're very helpful. And so I would say, you know, people should know that understanding the origin of all words is helpful. Another favorite saying of mine, which I made up, this one, the others are quoting somebody else. I never read a book that was so remote that it wasn't immediately useful. And then the question about who would you have dinner with, if you, if you had the chance to have dinner with anyone in history? Oh, who would I have dinner with? Shakespeare, to me, is the most obvious. I mean, that mind of his is just, the more I know, and I'm, I've been learning quite a bit, uh, the deeper it is. I mean, he's dealing at a time of great social conflict, and the plays reflect that, the Catholic-Protestant uh, split and the politics and the monarchy and all that. And the way he built resonances into the writing that just go on and on, it's like ringing a bell, bang, it just goes. So anyway, I, and I think we could have a conversation deeper and uh, would be uh, Plato, but I can't imagine what kind of conversation we could have. You talked about the importance of studying physics. Can you tell us why? I'd say, look, don't you, don't you feel bad walking around in a world you don't understand why it's the way it is? Take simple things. Why is the sky blue? Most people your age don't know the answer. It's amazing to me. You know, if you think, I sometimes will say to a group of technical people, Say, you know, you have never designed anything as complicated as a blade of grass. It's true. You know, a blade of grass can reproduce, it can handle different seasons, can be stepped on. Try it. <laughs> you know, the, the world is so interesting. How can you not want to know? How can you live not knowing? Unfortunately, science today is a bad path into that kind of understanding. It's all like a, a trade. You learn how to, to solve the equations. You learn, look, the way physics is taught today is like this, 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 and this. There's no place where you talk about not yet understanding something. There's no sense of a method of how you move. I mean, how do you get Newton's laws? Or how do you get Galileo's inclined plane? Try it. It's the only way.
Nobody teaches it like that. It's all totally rote, boring. If, if this century went well, the core issue would be meaning. What is, what can we believe in? What is the meaning of life? Well, the meaning of life is what you do. So you better do something good to make good meaning. Thank you for listening and see you next time.